can't breathe. Three words, one sentence that should be very easy to understand and very easy to respond to. We're already used to hearing those words and seeing them written on placards, being shouted on angry demonstrations, because those were the last desperate words that Eric Garner cried out, was filmed crying out 11 times as he was wrestled to the ground and choked to death by New York City police officers in July 2014. His alleged crime was trying to sell, and I quote, loose, untaxed cigarettes. Those exact same words were gasped repeatedly by George Floyd as his windpipe was crushed by a Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin. I don't want to be accused of telling fake news now. So the length of time that that happened was eight minutes and 46 seconds. The crime that he's alleged to have committed was trying to pass off a counterfeit $20 note. George Floyd's death 12 days ago has sparked the huge wave of uprisings that we've seen erupting across the United States, a wave of uprisings that it's being suggested are even greater than those that rocked the United States in the aftermath of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in April 1968. Thank you for tuning in. My name's Brian Richardson, and I'm your host for this Socialist Workers' Party discussion on Black Lives Matter from revolt to revolution. Today, I'm gonna be in conversation with a fantastic panel of contributors. From the United States, we have Michael Brown, who's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter in Long Beach, California. Alongside Michael, we have Janet Older. Janet is a justice campaigner and the sister of Christopher Older, who died in custody at Hull Police Station in 1998. Nadia Ibrahim is a London-based anti-racist activist. And finally, Yuri, again, is a London-based anti-racist activist, a long-time student of American politics, and the author of The Rebel's Guide to Martin Luther King. Now, we already have hundreds of people tuned into this podcast, to this broadcast, I should say, but please do continue to share it on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or whichever social media you use, because we want more and more people to tune into this important discussion. We also want to hear your comments, your contributions, and your questions. We want other people to come and join us. Michael, can I turn to you first? And I want to ask you, Michael, I want to ask you two specific questions. Firstly, is this the biggest revolt that we've seen since 1968? And secondly, why has this particular death at this particular time sparked such a wave of revolt? Over to you, Michael. Definitely. Thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate you hosting and thanks for uh, throwing us my way. And also, uh, I want to thank the SWP for providing this platform so that we can talk about things that are going on internationally and possibly um, 
talk about the ways that they intersect and, and some of the parallels that we may um, share from one struggle to another struggle um, across seas. But just to answer your first question, in terms of just uh, the numeric size of this uh, particular revolt right now, um, judging by everything that I've read, this is absolutely um, the biggest you know, multi-city uh, rebellion, revolt, riot, whatever you want to call it, um, since the 60s, um, after Dr. King was killed, I believe it was a little bit over 100 cities um, basically were in flames um, days afterwards, um, which took a coordinated uh, national response to put down uh, as far as that rebellion. And um, in 92, um, when Los Angeles uh, was on fire here um, on the West Coast, you had other states that did uh, join in and participate, but it wasn't nearly as widespread as what we're seeing right now in the current moment. Um, there's a variety of reasons uh, as to why this this particular killing seemed to invoke so many so much outrage from so many people. Um, I think just the visceral uh, way that it occurred. I mean, it, you looked at it; it was it was. I mean, it was basically akin to like a, a boa constrictor, you know smothering a, a mice or something you know i hate to use those kind of analogies but you know um when you start looking at police violence and the predatory nature um that it tends to uh, have on black people in this country you know i don't know how you can't you know draw those type of parallels and those types of comparisons so i think that was part of it um i think the current moment also has to be looked at um in in the entirety of like a continuum um i've been mentioning this before but you know, you can't decouple the current uh, rebellions and uprisings um, from what we saw a few years ago in places like Baltimore, Maryland, and also Ferguson, Missouri, um, where you saw uh, black youth-led um, rebellions, you know, fighting, fighting against the uh, national security state, basically, in the streets. Um, uh, all other uh, options at that moment, you know, by many of the youth have, have, have pretty much been exhausted. Um, they've lost faith, by and large any electoral system. So um, the next resort or the best resort um, to many of them is, is to get out in the streets and, and to directly confront this problem of systemic uh, racist police violence. I also think um, the larger context is important as well in terms of why you see so many other um, ethnicities such as working class whites and Latinos and, and, you, and, and Asian youth joining these protests um, alongside black youth. And that's the fact that in this country, I mean, right now, there are 40 million people unemployed. Um, that's that's important context. Uh, there's tens of millions of people right now without uh, health insurance in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah. Um, and also, if you look at what we have on offer in terms of uh, it being an election year, I mean, we're basically being, you know, being forced to choose between a, a kind of a neo-fascist, kind of quasi-neo-fascist in Trump and, 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 a, and a sort of a neoliberal in in and Joe Biden, you know, whose solution to police uh, terror is, you know, for police to shoot people in the leg. So, yeah, when you have things like that on offer, you know, um, at that point, you know, writing to your congressman and, and, and waiting to vote isn't always the most appealing type of option. So I think that's a reason why we're seeing uh, such widespread revolt um, yeah. and also just the Black Lives Matter era. Um, it's also um, shifted the ideological conditions in this country. Um, for many years, we were pretty much constrained by sort of a law and order uh, sort of a uh, era of, of, of thinking around policing. So I think a lot of that's been shattered. So that's why you're seeing so many people in the streets. Yeah. Michael, you mentioned, inevitably, you mentioned Trump. And I just want to pick up on that because 
of course, initially, predictably, he began by sending, you know, having been ushered to the safety, of course, of an underground bunker in the White House, mm-hmm. the commander in chief reacted by sending out a predictably provocative tweet, a tweet that, of course, was so provocative, so inflammatory that Twitter removed it from their platform for breaching their, their um what, what you know their their, their, their standards or whatever uh, a tweet in which he said when the looting starts the shooting starts following that he then and it was a it was a leaked phone call wasn't it to state governors in which he said to them you have to start dominating the situation unless you want to be run over and made to look like jerks and then finally of course on i think it was monday wasn't it of last week he had that press conference in which he invoked the 1807 Insurrection Act mm-hmm. and said that he was going to put troops on the street. He marched across the lawn of the White House to a church and held up a Bible and declared himself as the law and order president. Why do you think that he responded in that way? And what impact specifically do you think that that intervention by Trump has had on the situation? Well, I'll tell you one impact it didn't have. Um, it hasn't failed the situation. The protests have gotten larger, um, including yeah. in front of the White House. It seems to be um, the reaction to his uh, kind of rhetoric, the more bellicose, um, the more robust the uh, protests are becoming. Yeah. Um, not just in Washington, D.C., but you know, in some of the big urban centers, like here in Los Angeles and also in New York. Yeah. And even some of the, you know, smaller enclaves. I mean, I'm seeing protests in places like I didn't even know existed. Yeah. You know, just reading, even locally here in California, I'm, I'm reading small towns where, you know, 30 and 40 people are getting out there and marching and, and protesting. Yeah. So, yeah, his rhetoric is definitely not scaring anybody. It's not um, calming anything down. Um, unfortunately, I think he may be appealing to, you know, um, certain very violent and reactionary elements of his base. Um and he's kind of winking and nodding and, and throwing some dog whistles out there. And, and, you know, that could be a danger that we'd have to face. But um, I'm, I'm sorry, what was the first part of the question again, Brian? But, well, the first, I think you probably answered it, actually. Okay. What do you think he's responded in that way? And oh, okay. what, what impact do you think it's had on the situation? Yeah, as far as why he's responded in that way, I mean, that's kind of his thing. Um yeah, the tough on crime, law and order. I mean, the the, the looting and shooting. Um, that quote is directly from a segregationist um, from back in the days in Miami. I believe the Washington Post did a story on that, just talking about that rhetoric. Like I said, even a law and order thing. I mean, you got to go back to Nixon and, 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 and Reagan and, and to a certain extent, uh, Bill Clinton um, to even get back into that 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 sort of rhetoric. So um, in, with him designating like Antifa as, as a terrorist organization you know you're getting into some red baiting so i don't know he's fighting some wars of, of years past you know from the cold war that i don't know if many of the young people in the streets um i don't even know if it resonates with them which is probably why they're ignoring it for good yeah. reason yeah can I, 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 I might just bring in yuri at this stage and ask if he's got anything that he wants to yuri do you want to add to anything that michael has said yeah michael's given us a very good description of what's going on in the bizarre world of Trump, but it's really interesting. I think that there are big splits opening up at the top of society um, all over the world, but particularly uh, so in, in America. And the splits you can you can you can see in the way 
for Trump, there's a logic. Um, elections in November, he was supposed to run the election on the basis of a, uh, a shining economy. All of that's turned to dust. Um, the virus that he's handling of the virus has been so dramatically poor that his poll ratings are really far down. So he's hoping to emulate Richard Nixon's 1968 election campaign, which he runs on the issue of race and linking the question of race to law and order. So for him, there's a kind of logic in this ever ramping up the, the rhetoric and ramping up the violence. Um, th this is the only way he sees of being able to galvanize his own voter base. But um, for the rest of the ruling class, there's a, there's a real sense of nervousness about this because the more he escalates the, uh, the rhetoric, the more the, 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 res the resistance on the streets seems to be uh, consolidating and being prepared to, to fight back. And that means that we're raising the temperature across the board. So you see Mark Esper, the, the Defense Secretary of the United States, uh, earlier in the week was talking about dominating the battle space by, when, when policing the, uh, the riots and protests and so on. By the end of the week, he's saying that he doesn't want troops to come uh, onto the streets because uh, under the Insurrection Act, because that will be uh, inflaming the situation and it's a method of last resort. Yeah. I mean, there are all kinds of really big splits at the top because of the resistance, and yet the resistance is staying pretty firm. So I think this is a really big crisis for them. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, that um, you mentioned Trump, you know, gambling that he can emulate Nixon. The last time, I think I'm right in saying this, and Michael, you might want to pick up on this as well. The last time the 1807 Insurrection Act was invoked was in 1992 by uh, George Bush Senior uh, to try and quell the riots that had erupted that summer when the police officers responsible for the brutal beating of Rodney King, another black man in 1991, a beating that was filmed. When those police officers were acquitted in 92, that's when the LA riots erupted and that's when that George Bush invoked the Insurrection Act. But of course he lost the following election, didn't he? I don't know if I, Michael and then Yuri perhaps want to pick up on that? Yeah, I could speak to that a little bit because I was a child here in L.A. when that happened. And I remember seeing the troops here, not only, you know, the troops, but also the California National Guard, you know, on our streets. So I was I was born and raised in South Central L.A., which was the epicenter of the last rebellion. But, yeah, I mean, it ended up being I mean, I think there was a lot of contributing factors to why uh, Bush senior, you know, wasn't able to continue on after that, uh, after those uh, rebellions. Um a lot of it do this kind of tone deafness around the situation. Yeah. And you had, you know, the, the great, quote unquote, hope and change candidate, one of the first ones, which was Bill Clinton, um, which, again, you know, shows you sort of the danger of the of, of playing into the Democratic Party. Um, Clinton came in and proceeded to basically shred the, the social safety net and also uh, sign, you know, uh, policies like NAFTA, which have basically uh, made the social and economic situation in this country, you know, even worse which, I, again, I don't think you can decouple that from the, the current context in terms of this neoliberal uh, era that we're in right now, where the emphasis is on, you know, policing and not uh, social programs for people. So um, anytime you resist and stand up, you know, you're met by the uh, kind of the iron fist of the organized state, you know, as opposed to being met with uh, policies that could actually uplift uh, millions of working class people. So, 
yeah, I think I think um, I don't know if this is electorally if this is necessarily uh, similar to that era, but you know, because I think I think Joe Biden is such a bad candidate, but uh, Bill Clinton was able to woo many people um, and, and and sort of run as sort of a kind of a reformist candidate, you know, following Reagan and, and the Bush years. So um, we'll see, we'll see if uh, Joe Biden can can parlay this into anything. But yeah, those are some of the similarities I, I could see between then and now. Yuri, do you want to add to any any of that? Just that I remember the headline uh, on the uh, on the LA Times uh, on the week at the end of the riot, which was uh, superpower retakes gutted second city. Now, the idea that the second city in America had to be retaken by its own troops was a terrible signal to send out to the rest of the world from the point of view of the ruling class. And I think there are grave dangers in, in this for, for them. You know, troops are uh, are much more a reflective of American society than the National Guard are. And that means you're going to be sending um, black and brown people into areas where black and brown people are protesting. And there is much more danger that at some point or another, troops are not going to follow, follow orders. And I think that will be one of the things that are very near the front of the minds of the people at the Pentagon who are opposing the strategy. Yeah. Michael, back to you now. I, I, I just want to go back to something that you mentioned a few minutes ago. You, you mentioned the whole question of Antifa, who, of course, Trump specifically referred to, didn't he, when he made that press, that, that press statement last Monday. And we've also heard a huge amount about supposed riots, professional anarchists, looting and so on. What are your thoughts on, on those particular suggestions? Yeah, um, it's not a surprise. It's not to be. Um, it wasn't unexpected because I think we saw this a few years ago at the height of the. Uh, I don't know if people over internationally were following some of the street battles between, you know, so-called Antifa and also the alt right in places like Berkeley and Seattle and up in Portland. So that that kind of reached a fever pitch, um, you know, heading into uh, Trump's uh, inauguration and then also afterwards. So you saw these pitch street battles. Uh, usually in the streets and a lot, a lot of times on college campuses where, uh, you know, you had these two opposing sides and, and people like Donald Trump and many of the reactionary right, uh, they seized upon that, uh, this kind of character of, of, of an Antifa, which isn't even a group. A lot of us know that Antifa is just short for anti-fascist for people who don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they kind of turn it into this cartoon character of, of, of a protester who goes out and just breaks things and lights things on fire for no reason. And, 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 is is under the orders of, of George Soros or something like that. It's crazy conspiracy stuff. So it's not unexpected. Um, what this really is is an attack on on when he designates a uh, Antifa terrorist organization. This is really an attack on the entirety of the working class that has any sort of progressive ideas because everybody's going to be painted with that brush from union activists to even your uh, you know your kind of milk toast liberal sort of pacifist. Um, they're going to get hit with that same brush. So. It's important that we stand up and push back against that. And we all need to be anti-fascist, you know, anti-fascist and also uh, be unapologetic about it. Yeah. Nadia, let me bring you in at this point. Nadia, is there anything from what either Michael or Yuri has said that you'd like to add to at this particular point? Mm. Well, I suppose, you know, I want to come back to Trump, um, you know, in the way and he's really used um, what's happening right now because you know the reality is how dare Donald Trump you know how dare Trump 
his allies and his followers try to take the moral high ground on the question of violence when he is absolutely reveling in the fact that he's going to be able to use more force on young people, protesters, who are out on the streets demanding justice. Um, you know, he's deployed the National Guard and police uh, who are dressed as stormtroopers already, you know, heavily armed with rubber bullets and, and hard wooden bullets um, to attack uh, an unarmed demonstrators um, in the streets with flashbang grenades um, and things like chemical agents. And it's absolutely disgusting. You know, you're seeing uh, across the United States journalists being shot at, attacked, hospitalized for trying to cover what's going on. Um, and, you know, all of this is being done in the name of law enforcement. Well, what sort of law enforcement is it um, to shoot toddlers in the face with rubber bullets? Um, you know, they want to talk about the violence on the side of the pro those people who are protesting um, and fighting for Black Lives Matter. Um, when actually, you know, they're the ones, they're the, you know, huge culprits and people to answer for when it comes to, to that question. Um, and I think, you know, the problem of violence um, goes a lot deeper than what's happening now. And I really want to talk about, you know, the everyday violence of racism and capitalism. Yeah. You know, let's talk about the violence experienced by African-American uh, women. Let's say, for instance, you're if you're an African-American single mother, you know, yeah. worrying about whether your sons will return safely from the supermarket or jogging um, or the violence in your impoverished, you know, harsh conditions, which yeah. impose all sorts of stress and mental health and physical uh, health issues. Yet at the same time, you're disproportionately um, limited in your access to healthcare um, in order to deal with all of that stuff. Um, you know, what about if you're growing a young, growing up a young black man um, yeah. in America knowing that you're four or five or however many times likely to uh, go to jail than, than your white classmates? You know, yeah. the violence didn't start with the rebellion, uh, rebellion that's sweeping the States today. Uh, the racism rooted in this capitalism system, uh, capitalist system um, is where the violence started. Um, now, as though, you know, the police were not militarized enough, you know, yeah. Trump wanting to invoke uh, the Insurrection Act and put combat troops on the streets. who spent the last two decades, by the way, um, in the Middle East uh, using the same arms, the same vehicles and resources um, in the U.S.'s intervention there um, is absolutely appalling. Um, you know, really what you're seeing is the forces of U.S. imperialism combining with racist America, you know, the two most uh, worst and destructive appendages of one of the most powerful capitalist countries in the world. Um, so if we're going to talk about violence, I think we need to talk about the system that perpetuates it. Yeah. You know, when you said that, Nadia, you, you reminded me of Angela Davis, who you might just be able to see over my shoulder here, because when she was interviewed, I think it was in the late 1960s, and the interviewer put exactly that question to her about, you know, violence by people, you know, the oppressed. And she said exactly that. How dare you look at the violence of the oppressors rather than the violence of the oppressor. Thanks very much for that. Uh, folks, there are now well over, I think, 550 to 600 people who are tuned in, which is fantastic. But we want even more people to tune in and be part of this conversation. So please carry on sharing it on Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. That's that'd be absolutely fantastic. Michael, let me um, well, before I come back to you, Michael, um, what, what I want us to look at now is the, the response, if you like, of other people beyond the White House, because I, we know, for example, that 
other police forces, other police officers have condemned the actions of Chauvin and the other three officers involved in the killing of George Floyd. We've seen police officers taking the knee, for example. We've seen um, major corporations condemning what has happened. I think Nike, for example, put out a YouTube video saying, don't, you know, they usually say, just do it, don't they? But they put out a video saying, don't do it. Don't pretend that America doesn't have a problem, which was retweeted by its main rival, Adidas. We had Barack Obama. Barack Obama's usually remained pretty silent, hasn't he, since he left the, the, the White House back in at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. But he sent out a message saying that racism must not be considered normal in America in 2020 and called upon Americans to unite to fight against bigotry. Um, Michael, what do you make of all of that, first of all? No, that's a great question, Brian, because I think a lot of people are trying to wrap their head around it when you start looking at certain corporations and entities that are have become sudden anti-racist, I guess you could say. But yeah, um, yeah it's just interesting. I, I think it's a, I think it represents, you know, like I said, an ideological win for the movement. Um, the fact that, you know, we've opened up the space, you know, from the street level um, to actually make this, you know, uh, expedient for these entities to say, because, you know, usually they're pretty apolitical. They don't touch these sorts of issues. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to see the NFL come out, you know, um, all of a sudden, and they, they're basically admitting that they were wrong about the Colin Kaepernick thing and, yeah. and players kneeling. But it's like, OK, that's cool. But, you know, you still destroyed this man's career. And there were plenty of us at the time, millions of people who were saying, uh, you know, he should be able to kneel. Um, why are you condemning him? Why are you vilifying him? Um, as far as, you know, officers kneeling and, and, and marching with protesters and things like that. I think that represents a, uh, 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 just in my opinion, I think that represents a sort of panic um, within just the whole psyche of policing. Because, like I said earlier, um, you know, the whole law and order ethos has been very strong in this country. Um, it's been basically a proverbial third rail of politics that that you know, uh, Democrats and Republicans don't touch. Um, you never question police, and you particularly don't question these police unions um, who basically run roughshod over these all these major metropolitan cities in this country. So they've lost a lot of legitimacy. Um, there's been a lot of cracks in the armor um, uh, in in, a, in a kind of the, the mysticism around the police, you know, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, this ain't this ain't this ain't chips. This ain't uh you know all those shows that we grew up watching. You know, where the police was the was a good guy and and save the day um these viral videos over the last you know few years you know starting with you know uh rodney king's back in 92 it's helped to chip away at that 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 sort of you know what we thought was impenetrative armor that they had um yeah. as far as having a hold over people so i think they're panicking i think that's why you see them kneeling but at the same time you know um if you're really following these situations a lot of those officers who are kneeling and, and marching with people they're also macing and, and flashbanging people later on at the same protest. So it's theater. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of theater, particularly from the uh, members of the Democratic Party, uh, such as in Washington, D.C. I just saw a tweet yesterday by Black Lives Matter D.C. where they basically denounced um, the painting of curbs in Washington, D.C. with, bl uh, with uh, Black Lives Matter um, by a, a black politician, a liberal, 
um, who's, you know, who's, who's very high on the uh, performance, the performative, what I like to call performative woke um, sort of acts. But, you know, in terms of policy, there's nothing there. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we can look forward to seeing a lot of that. I think a lot of people aren't going to be fooled by it. Um, some are, and they're going to have to learn the hard way. Um, but um, I think for the most part, I don't see it really succeeding. Um, that kind of window dressing, I think we're past that, that, that era. Mm-hmm. Yuri, let me bring you in. And again, you know, any further observations in addition to what Michael has said? I'm, I'm interested, for example, in, you know, the intervention that Barack Obama has made in the last few days. What are your thoughts? I think this is a major crisis for the Democrat Party. I mean, because I think uh, if you think about the role that the Democrats have played since the civil rights era, they've been the main release valve for pressure when it builds up in the system over questions uh, of race. And from the late 1960s onwards, they've managed to steer anger at racism into the electoral process. And it was typified with the slogan that that Cornel West used last weekend on CNN when he said the strategy of black faces and high places has failed. Now we've got to look to a strategy of revolution, he said. And he said this on, you know, CNN is the biggest network in, in the States, the best known network anyway. Uh, and he was given like 10 minutes to expand on this theme. And I think what that shows is there's a huge vacuum uh, politically in, in America, one in which some of the corporations are actually trying to fill with their statements. But the fact we are hearing almost nothing from the Democrats shows you just how vacuous that uh, that, that that line of attack has, has become, because we've had all the black faces in the high places. You know, you think back to Ferguson in 2014 that, uh, uh, that we talked about earlier, when Michael Brown was shot uh, in, in Ferguson, who was the president? Barack Obama was the president. We had a black attorney general. We had, in the country, we had dozens of black police ch- uh, chiefs of police, you know, and yet we find completely incapable of stopping the police going on a racist rampage. You know, the fact that the militarized police first really came on the scene to people's notice in 2014. The fact that the president can't stop this means that it's not really about the complexion of the person at the top. The thing we're dealing with here is a system that's racist. The whole system is racist to its core, and it can't be changed just by changing the color of the people uh, at the top. And that, I think, is an important lesson that lots of people have learned for themselves uh, in, in recent weeks. It's interesting, isn't it, Yuri, that it seems almost as if, you know, almost every single, you know, chief police officer is a black man. Indeed, the the, the, poli- the, the chief of police in Minneapolis, in Minneapolis itself is a black man, isn't it? And there's a huge number of black district attorneys, governors, uh, there were some senators, members of Congress and so on. So clearly we, we've had quite, a, you know, not not enough, you might argue, but there there have been a large number of black faces in some of the highest places, hasn't there? That we can't get any higher. To be fair, I mean, you know, when you've had the presidency, you've reached the top, and that means the the strategy was, is essentially completed. And if people are finding under the Obama presidency that not only was the gap between uh, the poorest pe- people, black people in society, and the richest whites was continuing to grow under Obama's, both of Obama's presidencies. But what you also found was that within the black community itself, the disparity of income was growing there too. So you find that rich black Americans were getting richer, 
whilst poor black Americans were getting poorer under a black president. Now that to me doesn't strike me as hope or change or anything else that we were we were promised in 2000 and in, in 2008. And what it reflects, I think, is something that both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X came across uh, in, in the 1960s. Malcolm X said in the year before he was assassinated, you can't have capitalism without having racism. And Martin Luther King said, you can't separate militarism, racism and poverty. They're all part of the same system. And so once we recognize that, there are big conclusions to be drawn. It means that we can't reform these things out of the system. We have to fight for something far more fundamental. Thank you. Thanks very much, Yuri. And again, folks, please do carry on uh, asking your, inviting your friends to join us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or whatever. We've got over 600 people tuned in now and a stream of people sending in comments talking about how, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement has rekindled our hope. So thank you to all of you. Thank you for now as well to the people who've contributed, in particular, Michael Brown, who for those of you who tuned in later, is the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement in Long Beach in California. I'm going to come back to what I think is a really big question of where do we go from here. But I want to shift slightly and consider the response that we've seen here in Britain. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, since the uprisings in the United States, we've seen a series of solidarity protests of different sizes up and down the country here in Britain. And I think many people will perhaps understandably say, well, what's any of this got to do with us here in Britain? We don't have armed police patrolling the streets regularly, for example. So uh, let me turn first of all to you, Janet. Yeah. Hi. And uh, thank you for joining us, Janet. Janet Alder. Janet, your brother Christopher, I think I'm right in saying, aren't I, that he served in the British Army during the Falklands War back in 1982. Is that right? That's right, yeah. It was a paratrooper um, in the forces. Yeah. And, and yet he died in police custody in Hull in 1998, didn't he? Yeah, um, he was unlawfully killed after... You know, just a normal night out. He'd just been at a night out with his friends um, and he'd been assaulted, taken to the hospital. Um, as a complainant, the police went to see him, one of them I was at school with. They were abusing the power within the um, hospital, pulling him about and whatsoever. Dragged him out with his feet trailing. Um, all the hospital staff said he was dragged out with his feet trailing. And the police were saying that, no, he just walked out between us. And um, he got outside, he spoke to a security guard and told the security guard that he'd see him the next day because, you know, by then we had, they had the same profession. Christopher, after leaving the army, had gone into security and um, stepped into a police van, handcuffed behind his back, um, and I suppose a short journey of five minutes from the hospital to the police station he um, came out fully unconscious with his trousers and box shorts down to his knees. Um, more severe injuries, his belt missing, another missing tooth. And, um, yeah, it was filmed on CCTV, very clear to see, that these officers just drag him into the custody suite, throw him on the floor, and he spent 11 minutes on his front 
gasping for his life, making rasping noises um, that you couldn't mistake for somebody being in, you know, breathing difficulties. And um, they were all just stood about speaking about um, charging him with a more severe charge, which would justify that Christopher being in the condition that he was on. And what's happened since then, Janet? Tell us a bit um, more about well, the struggle that you've had to get justice. Yeah. yeah. Well, in, initially what had happened is the police came to my door. I think it was at half past 11 at night. And, you know, it was, you know, thud on the door. And I, I was like in shock and wondered what was going on. And then uh, they said, oh, uh, your brother's died in police custody. Police custody could mean sat next to a police officer. And I thought, uh, and, you know, you get this instant kind of dread inside, you know, um, and I don't know what it is. It's just an instant lack of trust with the state. Um, and what happened is I kept trying to phone up the police station and I was, I was given a different version of events because my brother was told that Christopher was actually, uh, he fell unconscious once he got to the police station, but he was already in when I came out of the van. And um, I was, you know, I was expecting then, do you know, to, to, like everybody else, that the state does the right thing. Um, it took them two years, having our emotions in, the, in their hands to show us the actual footage. So there was all sorts going on in my head and that lot. And, you know, I weren't getting any answers, straight answers from anybody. And um, one of the difficulties was I, I realised that when Christopher had had his post-mortem, the Home Office pathologists worked for the same people that the police did, and that's the government. And uh, just like uh, George Floyd's case, they tried to find something mechanical in Christopher's body Um for, well, basically, they said that it was unconclusive, the result of the post-mortem. And then I thought, well, why is he not walking about till this day? Do you know, the, the, you know, as far as you don't know what's gone on, you know how Tutankhamun's died. So why can't you just tell somebody how somebody's died in police custody type of thing? And um, it took two years and it was just before the inquest. And this is something that they do to families all the time. This is engineered purposely um it's it's also to hopefully make the make sure that the public forgets about what's going on but it's also a way of wearing the family down yeah um and that two years we had to wait we had an inquest into christopher's death um but just before that the coroner said well i think rather than the family be shocked they need to see the um, cctv footage when I looked at it, I was just in total shock. The same kind of feeling that brought up, you know, was brought up in me again when I saw George Floyd, you know, being knelt on in the street with this police officer with absolutely no kind of emotion on his face, no kind of care about what he was doing, as if he was already set up for walking away with this murder. Um, and it just raised all, well, why have they not helped him? Yeah. yeah. If, if you know, somebody's in a critical condition and you haven't done anything to them, you would automatically go and help him. But there was none of that. There was a cold callousness about it. 
And um, once I'd, um, I mean, the police officers were speaking about putting him in the foyer and everything, anywhere, do you know, just to get him out the road, but they knew he was unconscious. Um, and I expected the Crown prosecution and everybody to do the right thing. Now, it took an inquest with nine ordinary men and women that had looked at the evidence, heard that Christopher's clothes had been destroyed, that the van had been cleaned, that the police officer's clothing had been cleaned, that um, one of them had gas canisters, one was sent away for destruction. Um, the police officer's clothing, I'd say, had been dry cleaned as well. Christopher's clothes had been burnt. And it was just all these different things that they had listened to. And they came to conclusion that Christopher had been unlawfully killed. So when, when you say unlawfully killed, you would think that they'd want to hold the people that's unlawfully killed him to account. Yeah. And um, it took another two years before we actually got into a position where we got the medical evidence that was needed because the Crown Prosecution kept coming back and saying, no, there's no evidence of police wrongdoing and, you know, basically trying to blame Christopher, um, assassinating his character, um, or, he, you know, he might have been on drugs, he might have this, he might have that. They point to anything other than the actual people that's responsible. Yeah. And um, it's it's such a painful, painful process to go through. It is really, really, it's, it's that is added on to the actual um, inhumane death. And Janet, um, Janet, I think it's the case, isn't it, that you also had the indignity of being given the body of an elderly woman to bury rather than Christopher's. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, after we got the unlawful killing verdict and, at the inquest and that, I thought, well, now's the time to actually, you know, give my brother some respect, got the army in, got my family in, um, and now we can, you know, lay him to rest. And it wasn't in 2011 that we were told that we'd buried a woman, a 77-year-old woman. Christopher was in the mortuary in six body bags, wrapped in six body bags. He'd been there for 11 years. Yeah. And they just said that nobody knew about it. Now, since then, I've got all the evidence. They'd put a gagging order on me so that I couldn't tell anybody. And it's very clear that they knew all those years it was Christopher. They were using his body for training, training police officers, and all the time trying to pass it off this woman. Now, Christopher, when he, he died, he was in good condition. Yeah. They'd abused him that much that he was deteriorated to just about nothing by 2011. Janet, thank you so much for that. I'm getting we're getting floods of messages of support and solidarity. GD Cox, for example, says uh, solidarity with Janet, an amazing campaigner who's never stopped fighting for justice for her brother and all the victims of police racism. And I, I think that's absolutely spot on. I'm, I'm, and and it's, it's the case, isn't it, that we've seen over 3,000 people dying at the hands of the state and the police since David Oluwale was chased to his death in Leeds in 1969. I recall Cherry Gross, for example, a, a woman in Brixton, where I live in South London, who was paralysed by the police in 1985. She didn't die then. She didn't die until 2011. But the coroner's at her inquest said that that paralysis was a main contributory factor to her 
death, I recall again in the area where I live in 1995, Brian Douglas dying at the hands of the police, Wayne Douglas dying at the hands of the police, Jean-Charles de Menezes, an innocent Brazilian electrician who died at the hands of the police. He was assassinated at Stockwell Police Station, not police station, tube station in 2005. And of course, Mark Duggan, who was assassinated in 2011 and whose death sparked the riots that we saw rocking cities and towns across England that particular year. We need to move on. Um, and so I want to bring in Nadia at this point. And Nadia, I want to ask you about specifically about the protests that we've seen here in Britain over the last week. Um, first of all, can I ask you, why do you think that so many people have taken to the streets? Well, I think the thing I've got to really start with is the fact that, you know, these protests are like nothing I've ever seen or been on before. And, um, you know, for instance, you know, for starters, it's like it's a lot bigger, um, it's a lot blacker and it's a lot more working class um, than any movement or demonstration that I've been um, a part of. And I think one of the things that's most important about it is that, you know, you go to those demonstrations, you're a part of them um, and you look at the people there and the average age is about, you know, 19, 20. Um, and this is so important because these are exactly the people, those, you know, young often uh, black and minority ethnic people who are part of those marches are precisely the people who are the least heard in our society, um, especially when it comes to young black people in this country, often talked about, um, never really talked to. And so I think this development is a really important one at the moment. Um, and yes, these protests are about um, George Floyd, but it's also about a lot more than that. Um, to a lot of people on those demonstrations, you know, especially if you're a young black person, um, you know, grappling with the sort of society we live in here. Um, you know, you think about uh, the fact that you're constantly being told that you're shit, that the music you like isn't good enough, or the way that you look isn't acceptable. Um, or you think about the constant media references that paint you as, as aggressive um, or violent. You know, people are constantly made to feel as well that they're the problem in education. You know, you think about the, the issue around um, exclusions and off-rolling that leave uh, black students out of education altogether. Um, and I think something recently that, you know, the current crisis has really added to that experience is the misery um, in knowing that in this pandemic, you are four times as likely to uh, contract and be killed by COVID-19 um, than somebody who is white. So I think all of these things are coming together and young people are expressing um, a rage at the fact that not only has society uh, failed to change their conditions, but in the first place, society barely recognizes their conditions. And that's something that is starting to shift um, now. Um, and when we're talking about the conditions people are experiencing, I think, again, we've got to recognize that these are the same conditions, you know, the poverty, the hardship um, that imposes so much stress um, and mental health issues within the black community. Um, so all of these things, I think, have created a deep sense of anger that has developed over a long period of time um, that has brought uh, young people out onto the streets. Um, and the murder of George, George Floyd is really something that has unleashed um, all of that um, and all of that anger onto the streets of the capital. Um, the other thing I want to say about the demonstrations is that, you know, for instance, a lot of these people who are um, on the marches 
um, and I've been on uh, the one on Sunday, Wednesday, um, and perhaps you can tell uh, one today. Um, but you know, a lot of these people are from places like Southeast London, where I grew up. Um, and on that, I think you know that's why it was brilliant to see um, 500 p uh, people socially distanced taking the knee um, at Lewisham Police Station, um, organised by the local Stand Up to Racism group. Um, and really, this is because I mean, only a few weeks before, I think it was about two um, or more weeks before um, the murder of George Floyd, a young uh, black woman was pinned down by the police, six police officers, um, while she was screaming, "I can't breathe." Yeah. Um, you know, for the police to, to treat in this way um, an unharmed, somebody who, if you look at the video, doesn't really seem to be resisting much, but just struggling to actually um, breathe. You know, for the police to treat them in this way, you know, it absolutely smashes the myth that, you know, the police here are any better or less racist than their counterparts um, in the United States. Um, and really, these are the sort of experiences that are driving young people onto the streets in central London for these Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah. You know, the question of Black Lives Matter and police brutality isn't just one that for people um, is in the United States. You know, it's right here on our doorsteps and young people are ready to kick back to the curb. Yeah. Nadia, I want to ask you, what sort of um, arguments are you and your, have, and your friends having whilst you're well, both on the protests and, you know, just, you know, generally when we're, you know, we're here during lockdown, what sort of arguments are you having? Well, I think the main thing that comes up that I'd like to talk about um, is really around the question of privilege. You know, do white people have privilege? Where do they belong in our movement? Um, you can see that a lot when you're talking to people. You can even see it in the signs people bring. There's a lot of homemade signs that come onto these marches. Um, and you can see, um, you know, the question of privilege coming out there with signs like white silence is violence um, and what have you. And it's quite obvious that, you know, privilege really dominates the way people understand not just racism, but inequality um, and oppression. Um, that really cannot be denied. Um, but at the same time, you know, these demonstrations reflect people's lives. You know, people come onto these demonstrations in groups with their friends and family. Um, and these groups tend to be not just black, black, white, you know, and everything in between. Um, and they're integrated and marching together. <coughs> Sorry, just got distracted by the thunder. <laughs> they're integrated and marching together. Um, and I think on these demonstrations, you know, people are sharing a, a huge sense of strength um, and unity. And I think in the process of that, you know, whether consciously or not, you know, the young white people who are part of these demonstrations, for instance, are actually seen as being uh, joining um, and marching with everybody else, are actually seen as being part of the solution um, in all of this. And so whatever the ideas of people coming onto the marches, I think what you're seeing um, is young people actually putting into action black and white unite and fight. Yeah. Thanks very much for that, Nadja. Okay, I'm going to ask everyone now one, I suppose, last big question, which is, where do we go from here? First of all, Janet, have you got any final thoughts for our viewers? Most definitely. Um, we fight on because I've got a, a list here, like, as long as my arm, basically, of all the people that have, you know what I mean, died. Um, and that's just a few, yeah, and there's been absolutely no accountability whatsoever. This can happen to any single one of us, yeah, but we can't, I've not, I've not been, able, been able to fight 22 years without the support of everybody else. Do you know what I mean? It's everybody else that's kept me afloat, and we need to stand together, and we need you know, 
character until the, the proper change, not cosmetic change. You know what I mean? Like where they say, come on, we're bringing another right, um, investigating force in. It's not good enough. The whole system is rotten and it needs taking down. We need to fight. Thanks very much, Janet. You are an absolute inspiration. Thanks for joining us and thanks for those incredibly powerful and passionate words. Nadia, are young people changing the world? Just how political are young people these days? Well, I think when you look at the explosive nature and power of the Black Lives Matter movement today, it's something worth celebrating. But more than that, I think what we have to recognise is it's absolutely ideological. You know, George Floyd's murder has unleashed a whole host of rejection and rebellion um, of the system that we live in. Um, and on those ba uh, Black Lives Matter marches, you know, it's not just a question of state violence or police brutality that's at the, uh, at the fore. You know, the movement has thrown up a whole host of questions um, and issues that young, that, you know, for young people are actually really breaking their faith um, in the system and, and things being able to go on as they are. Um, and to be honest, we saw this in a similar way when it came to the climate movement um, before lockdown earlier this year. You know, school students taking to the streets, demanding system, uh, system change, not climate change, um, and putting climate cha the issue of climate change back on the mainstream agenda. You know, I think there's something to be said um, of the way young people have actually been radicalized in the last year. Um, you know, despite always being told that they lack aspiration um, or that they don't care or they don't have something to say about the world. You know, they've taken a lead in the fight against capitalism um, with its racism, its war, it, its climate uh, chaos. Um, and to be honest, they're pulling the working class with them a lot of the time. Um, so you saw that a few months ago when, you know, the school students who are coming out on climate strikes managed to pull with them the union movement, workers taking action in different places um, in November, all calling for climate action and things to dramatically change. Um, and now you're seeing that dynamic play out um, somewhat on a much bigger scale. And I think, you know, we really need to turn to what's going on specifically around Black Lives Matter in the United States. You know, yeah. it's absolutely inspiring to see um, different transport unions across the states, you know, in solidarity with the protesters, but being from the same communities as well, um, taking action and making sure that actually uh, they're defended from, from the ruthless state and so on. Um, and really, I think I want to end on this. You know, I think all of this, you know, shows me that young people actually can be a detonator for a wider revolt um, in society, you know, pulling all sections of the working class uh, into it and so on. Um, and that, I think, is what gives what young people are doing right now um, the power to change the world. Yeah, thanks very much. Messages continuing to flood in. I've got Felix saying, absolutely, Janet, the system has to change, and others, too many to read out. Michael, and just to remind you all, Michael, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter in Long Beach, California. Michael, you've got a presidential election in November. At least in the short term, is the answer to get behind Joe Biden and ensure that Trump's a one-term president? Or should socialists be fighting for and arguing for something else? Yeah, I mean, that's, <clears throat> excuse me. But uh, yes, um, here in the U.S., in this context, when it comes to electoral politics, because it's winner take all every two to four years, um, yeah, the pull and draw of lesser evilism um, supposedly is, is, is very powerful. Um, there are a lot of people, including a lot of good people on the left, you know, who are, who are 
you know, under the guise of quote unquote harm reduction, um, who are encouraging people on the left to actually vote for Joe Biden as some sort of a, a, a way forward. Um, yeah, me as a socialist and as somebody who's been, you know, identifying himself as a revolutionary for about seven or eight years, um, you know, with Obama, that was that was the last that was the last straw for me um, in terms of, you know, uh, having any belief that this system could effectively reform itself um, through electoral politics. Um, yeah. So that's that's going to be a interesting debate, um, especially heading into the election over these next few months amidst the COVID crisis and also these ongoing uh, mobilizations and rebellions that we're seeing in the streets. So, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. But just to the question of, you know, uh, as far as like next steps, um, I think we just have to take these uh, these rebellions and, and uprisings to their most, you know, radical conclusions at this point. So um, already, you know, you have certain sections of the state, you know, particularly the Democratic Party and some of the big cities, you know, who are offering up concessions about, you know, defunding police and, and oversight commissions, you know, um, some of the stuff they've talked about for 50 years. But yeah, I think at this point, you know, we need to really be demanding and, and, and raising, you know, um, real tangible reforms in the interim with the understanding, um, as our sister uh, Janet Alder said, that, you know, the whole system is rotten and it, it eventually just needs to be uprooted, um, branch and brute, um, branch, I mean, branch and root um, entirely. So, I think that's the conclusion that uh, many people have to draw. Um, I think we've exhausted all other means at this point. And um, yeah, um, the, the, the social power is really in the streets. It's not in writing your congressman or circulating a petition or anything like that. Maybe down the line, that could be part of the struggle. But first and foremost, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're scared shitless right now because, you know, people, you know, were looting and burning and, and defying all the curfews, um, mostly across the country, uh, despite the National Guard being in all the major cities. So. Yeah. I think that type of militant, you know, real social power in the streets is what we need to harness and and and, and eventually parlay into organization. Yeah. Finally, Yuri, we've heard a lot of talk about revolution. Indeed, we just heard Michael describing himself as a revolutionary. What do you think the prospects are for this now? I think this is an incredibly important moment. Um, if we think about America, 111,000 people have died from the virus. Um, if you think that one in 2,000 black people in America has died from the virus, there's a huge crisis gripping the country at the same time that we have mass unemployment and a recession looking likely ahead, at the same time that we have the prospects of climate change and the destruction that that will, that that will bring. And we have the threat of further diseases down the line because this epidemic that we're facing now is the, a product of capitalism and there'll be more, more to come. So we're living in a really dangerous time and a time of crisis and a time when the ruling class are very much split about how to, how to proceed. And at the same time, for millions of working class people, I think where people are looking at each other and saying, we can't go on like this. People cannot be expected to to live under these circumstances. And that's why I think the demand for fundamental change has gained so much traction. And lots of people are talking about revolution, it's, tr it's true. But what people mean by the phrase revolution is somewhat diffuse uh, uh, and less clear. Now, I think our job as revolutionaries is to try and turn that phrase revolution, and that we need a revolution, 
into something a bit more concrete. Uh, if we look at the experience, people who've, who are looking at the experience of the world recently have opened their eyes to, to the way the world works. So for a long time, people have accepted the idea that the world is run by clever people uh, who are professionals and they know what they're doing. Very few people look at the world now and think that's the case. At the same time, we were always told that the people at the bottom of society had no uh, had no skills that required for running a country. We were told that you know that that, that that this is best left to the experts. And yet now, what we're seeing is that people understanding that sometimes it's the people at the bottom of society who are making sure everything functions. You know, when it comes to the question of uh, you know who's delivering your healthcare, who's who's the who's delivering your services, who's making sure there's food on the shelves, who's making sure things are being distributed, that's working class people. And so what I think we're fighting for in this question of revolution is the idea that workers not only are the best and biggest force to inflict damage on capitalism, but they're the best and biggest force to try and restructure the world in a way that's democratic and fair, and one that can look at the resources of the planet and, and act accordingly. So that to me, is is one of the is one of the key things that we have to we 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 have to do. We have to say the people at the bottom of society can take charge. On one condition, the condition is that we cannot allow chauvinism, prejudice, and racism to divide us, because the class only has power if it can be united, and it doesn't become united if we ignore the divisions that do exist among us. And so, therefore, we have to be very forthright about pointing out discrimination, pointing out the differences in the way people are affected by capitalism and argue to try and overcome uh, over, overcome those differences. Now, revolution and, and particularly that vision of revolution is a big ask, but our ranks have just been swelled by millions of people who are looking for exactly that kind of solution. And that's why I think events like this are so important because we've got to try and find all those millions of people and say to them, that we are much more effective when we're organized. And that's, I think, our job. As you were speaking there, Yuri, there was a, a roar of thunder and lightning. <laughs> As there should be. That, that, that was your powerful words. Who, that, <laughs> that. Let's hope that that's a, a sign of things to come for those at the top of society. Thanks, Yuri, and thank you to all of our panellists, to Michael Brown, all the way in Long Beach in California, to Janet Olga up there in Powell, and to Nadia Ibrahim for a brilliant discussion. Comrades and friends, knowledge is power. There is a wealth of material that you can read that can help you to make sense of the world and can help us to organize to fight for the kind of radical revolutionary change that we've talked about this afternoon and that we absolutely need. There's Yuri's book, A Rebel's Guide to Martin Luther King. There's a book that Yuri and I both contributed to called Say It Loud Marxism and the fight against racism. There is Angela Davis's brilliant book, Women, Race and Class, just to name a few. All of these books are available at Bookmarks, the independent socialist bookseller. Lockdown has clearly been an incredibly difficult time for all of us, and it has been a very difficult time for a small bookshop like books, Bookmark, which is trying to serve the movement. So you can help it by going online and buying these and a whole wealth of other fantastic political books 
at Bookmarks. I hope you can join us as well for next week's Socialist Workers Party online meeting next Saturday. We're going to be hosting a meeting on COVID-19 and the global struggle between life and profits, again, with a fantastic panel. It includes Baba Ayer, the editor of Socialist Worker in Nigeria, Christine Buchholz, who is a Delinker MP in Germany and a supporter of Marx 21, and Joseph Junara, who is from the Socialist Workers' Party here in Britain and is the editor of International Socialism Journal. And finally, comrades and friends, I want to just end with a couple of things for you to consider. Over the past week, I think many of you will have seen and heard many great sayings by some of the great giants of the anti-racist movement on whose shoulders we should be proud to stand. We've heard the phrase from Martin Luther King that riots are the voice of the unheard. We'll have seen on banners Malcolm X's great statement, liberate our minds by any means necessary. Angela Davis, over my shoulder here, Angela Davis saying that freedom is a constant struggle, and Frederick Douglass, that power concedes nothing without a demand. I want to finish with the words of the final Facebook message of a lesser known figure, and that figure is Heather Heyer. Heather Heyer was the young woman who was murdered at Charlottesville in 2017 by the kind of fascists who have been emboldened by Donald Trump both then and in the wake of the divisive and inflammatory words that he has said, the intervention that he's made in the days since George Floyd's death. Heather Heyer's final post was this, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Every one of you who's tuned into this broadcast is clearly paying attention. So thank you for tuning in and thank you for being interested in this talk. But of course, we're not just interested in talking the talk. We want to walk the walk and build the kind of fighting organization that can help to radically transform this world. The very best tribute that we can pay to those that we have lost, to Martin, to Malcolm, to George Floyd, to Breonna Taylor, to all of the people who died at the hands of the police, whether it's in the United States, Britain, or elsewhere around the world. And the very best tribute that we can pay to our sisters and brothers who have died in the fight against COVID-19 is to unite, organize, and fight for a better world. The Socialist Workers' Party is trying to build an organisation that can contribute to that struggle. And that's why I invite you, if you've listened to this broadcast, if you've liked what you've heard, but you're not yet a member, to come and join us. Thank you for tuning in. Stay safe. Stay strong. If you'd like to read more, you can find up-to-date articles at socialistworker.co.uk. If you enjoyed what you heard and would like to join the Socialist Workers' Party or find out more about us, you can go to swp.org.
www.socialistworkersparty.org.uk. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on facebook.com slash socialistworkersparty, on Twitter at SWP Britain, Instagram is socialist underscore workers underscore party, and you can subscribe to our podcast on all major podcast sites, including Spotify, Deezer, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, and iTunes.